This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. In the aftermath of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, thousands of people across the country have taken to the streets to protest police brutality. Video of Floyd's final moments as a police officer used his knee to pin Floyd's neck prompted a strong reaction from around the country. This included white evangelical leaders like Franklin Graham, who called the actions, quote, inexcusable. He wrote, to watch a police officer kill an unarmed black man with no concern on his face, his hand in his pocket, indifferent to the bystanders begging for something to be done to help the man is so disturbing. He and other officers on the scene refused to listen and refused to respond. I hope they have deep regret and remorse for their actions. Police are not the judge and jury. These officers will have to stand before God and the authorities on this earth for what they have done. Graham's remarks come five years later after he wrote this on Facebook. Listen up, blacks, whites, Latinos, and everyone else. Most police shootings can be avoided. It comes down to respect for authority and obedience. If a police officer tells you to stop, you stop. If a police officer tells you to put your hands in the air, you put your hands in the air. If a police officer tells you to lie down face first with your hands behind your back, you lie down face first with your hands behind your back. It's as simple as that. Even if you think the police officer is wrong, you obey. Parents, teach your children to respect and obey those in authority. Mr. President, this is a message our nation needs to hear, and they need to hear it from you. Some of the unnecessary shootings we have seen recently might have been avoided. The Bible says to submit to your leaders and those in authority because, quote, they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. White evangelicals like Graham generally have had a positive view of the police. 71% of white evangelicals rated police protection as good or excellent, in contrast to 45% of black Protestants, according to a 2017 study from Pew Research Center. Pew also found that 86% of evangelicals consider police caring versus 79% of Americans. And evangelicals are more likely to believe information from police, 81% of them, versus 74% of Americans. At the same time, evangelical political leaders have generally spoken against what they perceive to be large, centralized government power and have warned that Bible-believing Christians are likely to be persecuted by militarized government entities. We wanted to better understand how all of this connects. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, we have some very heavy issues to get into today, but I really would like to start with a gut check and to just hear how you're processing everything that's going on right now. Yeah, I mean, everything that's going on right now is fairly big. I think one thing that stood out for me as editorial director at Christianity Today, trying to figure out how do we at Christianity Today cover a lot of this, is just watching competing narratives and watching temptations for conversation take root on social media and I think in broader media. So for me, I think the question, this you know, one of the reasons I'm, I was eager to really have a quick to listen about police today was that I am anxious about the conversation shifting, for example, from police brutality, how we view the policing of our cities, and particularly the violence against African Americans by police. 
how <laughs> seeing that narrative shift to questions of like what are Trump's leadership responsibilities in, in, in these kinds of things and this, you know, photo op in front of the church on Monday and, and all these things. I just, I'm like, we are losing the conversation that we need to be having right now. Certainly the demonstrations are extremely worth talking about. The Some of the police violence at these demonstrations is obviously part of that conversation. Police violence against media is a major part of that conversation. As someone in the media, obviously that's near and dear to me. But man, I don't want to get, I do not want to move the conversation off of race and policing before we have a chance to have long and accountability talk about about that conversation. That's been my gut check is like, man, there's so much I want to talk about, but I, I have to keep reminding myself, don't go chasing after all of the important things that we could talk about in favor of probably the uh, one of the more important things to talk about that's at the center of all of this. So I think I have a gut check to just what I was reading right there. I am really stuck by this line that we read from Franklin Graham. If a police officer tells you to lie down face first with your hands behind your back, you lie down face first with your hands behind your back. It's as simple as that. I think when Franklin Graham was writing this in 2015, (laughs) it feels like he's being very black and white and like, this is just crystal clear. It was just startling to think about how, of course, that is the posture that George Floyd is in when he died. Like, that, those are the directions that Franklin Graham was giving him to follow, you know. And obviously, in this case, Frank, uh, George Floyd is not able to get up or even resist in this particular thing. But I don't know. I'm j- it just feels like very, like, haunting to read that type of thing where I almost read Graham's remarks and he's just like, if they kill you, you are at least following the law. <laughs> You know, and and that's what you have to be doing. And then, of course, when this scene plays out five years later, something, it seems like at least that Graham is able to kind of just like see the horror of these instructions. But I don't know. It it just felt very horrifying to actually like read those directions out loud and to think about how we all just watched what happened last week. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's part of my gut check as well is because... We we saw this that video resonate really broadly. Like some of the most conservative people on my Facebook feed were responding in very horrified in very horrified ways. I didn't really see what you've seen kind of in some of these past situations of like people rushing to like defend the police or even making some of the comments like Franklin Graham made after you know after some of these other deaths at the hands of police murders and killings. Yeah, I. I I don't want us to move off from the horror, you know, and you're right. Unfortunately, I think some of these looting, some of the questions of like, who's behind it? Is it locals or is it outside agitators or all that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. It's just going to politicize it and move us back towards dividing again. Yeah, right? Well, I I read this great piece from a Grand Rapids reporter who was kind of just synthesizing everything that he saw over the weekend. And he was mentioning that exactly about how the whole idea about bringing the outside agitators in there is this like convenient narrative to kind of let everyone off the hook in many ways. And he actually has this paragraph in there that mentions instance after instance of police brutality by the Grand Rapids Police Department. I completely agree that we're going to try to not have this conversation. And so we should have this conversation. So actually, why don't you tell us who our guest is today to talk about this? 
when we were asking who would be a good guest, one name kept coming up over and over again, and that is Aaron Griffith. Aaron Griffith is assistant professor of history at Sattler College in Boston and author of God's Law and Order, The Politics of Punishment in Evangelical America, which will be published by Harvard University Press in November. He's done a lot of research into the rise of evangelicalism coinciding with the rise of the large incarceration state and policing. His book does talk about that quite a bit. He's also written for Christianity Today and for several other publications. So Aaron, thanks for coming on Quick to Listen. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's wonderful to be here. I appreciate it. You are a historian, so we're going to talk a lot of history. And you know, one of the things maybe where we can pick this up is almost as a sequel to a podcast that we did a couple of weeks ago on the history of lynching, clergy responses to lynching. You talk about this some in the beginning of your book. This is what our previous guest talked about, was there was Christian opposition to lynching, but the black and white differences were pretty strong. That black clergy tended to focus on the fact that black people are being killed in terrible ways unjustly. That white clergy tended to focus on the fact that this goes against broader conceptions of law, or I shouldn't say broader, but more generalized conceptions of law and order and the way an ordered society should run. One thing that I'm, I'm always struck by needing to notice or remind myself of, and maybe other people aren't aware of, is that policing is fairly recent. So tell me a little bit about just like how long have police been around? When did they start? And has it always looked like it does now? In American history, there has long been some kind of official presence designed to keep order. What that's looked like has shifted over time, sometimes in very dramatic ways. In the colonial period, policing was was highly decentralized, quite informal. Usually it was a volunteer role or a group of men might be organized ad hoc to deal with a, an issue. And there wasn't really any professional training or uniforms issued. As American cities start to grow in the 19th century, many citizens, especially those with business interests, saw more policing as necessary. And larger industries in particular begin to hire their own security forces to protect their goods or their stores or their factories. Many business leaders start to contract with private policing agencies in order to crack down on what they see as subversive labor movements. The Pinkertons are one such organization that is famous, founded by Alan Pinkerton. And they were the Pinkertons were private detectives who would who would break up strikes sow dissension among unions, track down anyone who a business leader might see as a threat. We should also remember, though, that in the 19th century South, the police there are also tasked with protecting business interests, but this meant policing enslaved people. Slave patrols would seek out runaway and work to squelch potential rebellions. And some of these patrols were huge. In Charleston in the 1830s, they had around 100 officers in their slave patrol, which scholars have noted was larger than any northern city police force at the time. After emancipation, this kind of policing changes, but still is very much focused on securing economic interests and and making sure that Black people are subservient and are being used to build up industry. You'll sometimes hear the phrase convict leasing. So Black people being arrested and forcibly put to work on farms, in mines, in industry. This kind of convict leasing work, industrialists really depended upon their relationships with the law enforcement to make it work, to not only acquire convicts, but to keep them from running away. I'll say one more thing. like In the 19th century, especially in northern cities, we, we start to see 
in the late 19th century, local political machines start to mobilize their own police forces. And it's at the very end of the 19th century and into the early 20th century that we see a shift to professionalization and modernization. And in some ways in the United States, this is an embrace of the British policing model, been pioneered by Robert Peel in London, which is where the name Bobbies comes from. London's police force had begun to professionalize, wear uniforms, focus on crime prevention, not simply responding to crimes, but actively trying to police streets to keep crimes from happening. And U.S. cities start to follow London's lead, organizing police departments that are not linked to individual neighborhoods or business interests and that have professional standards and training. Police start wearing uniforms, they have badges, they have weapons, they increasingly acquire their officers to have education, and they start to use modern technology. They drive cars. They use fingerprinting. They have radio. How recently, Aaron, is the weapons part? Late 19th, early 20th century is when most departments start issuing firearms. I mean, before that, patrols or individual policemen very well might have carried guns. But it's in that early 20th century moment that the departments themselves start to start to issue guns. Yeah. And so this is around the 1920s and 30s, especially there's a massive national effort to really ramp up a, a war on crime, not just in cities, but we see this on the, the federal level as well, with the beginning of organizations like the Bureau of Investigation, the Federal Bureau of Investigation or, or FBI. And that professionalization, I think, is, is where we still are today throughout you know, the 20th and then into the 21st century. And that's kind of where your book focuses is, is on this, the, kind of the beginning of the 20th century. As you talk about the, you know, these two major things happening, the rise of kind of the evangelical world with uh, the fundamentalist modernist controversy, we've talked a lot about in Christianity over the years, and also the rise in changing notions of, of criminal justice. It sounds like, if I'm reading your book correctly, that in the beginning, even though you have kind of the, the more modernist, liberal side of things and the more fundamentalist, saying, using that word kind of historically, and the more fundamentalist evangelical side of things, disagree on all sorts of things. On criminal justice, they, they do kind of, at the beginning, share this concern that secularization and crime are somehow linked together. Tell me a little bit about that. Is that a case of strange bedfellows, or is that the case of answering the different questions with the same answer? This was one thing that surprised me as I was doing the research for this book, was often I would find a sermon or an article written by someone who was sort of, I knew to be like a liberal, very progressive on any number of economic or social issues. And I would, uh, maybe even a pacifist, and I would find an article they had written on like, on defending the police. And it would really catch me off guard. And I would, I would try to figure out why they were worried about this. And, and I saw that many people we might associate with the social gospel in the late 19th, early 20th century, people like Charles Sheldon of WWJD fame or uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, they were very excited about the positive social possibilities of policing. Sheldon would call police missionaries regularly in his, his writing for the Christian Herald. And he would talk a lot about social obligations to help the poor, to invest in progressive measures to deal with poverty. But he would also talk about how the police were a part of this work. The police were uh, just as essential to a neighborhood's well-being as social workers or, or ministers might be. 
this would get narrated in very different ways depending on the minister and depending on their context. You know, so a lot of more conservative folks or, or people that would call themselves fundamentalists even would focus in on the police as necessary with more punitive rhetoric, saying like they need to, the death penalty is valid or we need to treat suspects roughly. But both liberals and conservatives, white liberals and conservative Christians agreed that policing, generally speaking, was was necessary and that it was, that crime was a secular evil, that crime was something that America was going to descend into if it if it turned away from God. This would play itself out in very different ways depending on the context, but they largely agreed. And sometimes you would it was hard to tell even when I was doing the research, like who who's on what team that the lines break down there. And I think this this connects to broader what what a lot of historians recently have started to realize about evangelicalism even is that it's hard to the flexibility even of a term evangelical here we can see it in terms of an issue like crime and policing and one the one of the interesting things is that there's not it seems to me a strong black and white division among the clergy either at least not that it's on your book on anxiety over what they would consider to be rising crime. A number of black pastors also saying we, we have to do something about crime and say, and also arguing that it liberal liberalizing forces in some way. How does that conversation change? I, I do remember there's a part in your book where you talk about among the white churches, the anti-lynching forces, especially on the left, because some of the folks on the right weren't talking about lynching all that much, just very easily moved into kind of from anti-lynching into kind of anti-crime mode, which would cast issues in a different way. But wh- where, where were black churches during this period? This is, again, complicated, but I I think on the lynching issue, it took me a while to figure this out, but I I think the way that white Protestants would talk about lynching, a lot of white Protestants, especially liberal Protestants, were very upset about the continued presence of lynching in American society. And some of them would note in the late 19th, early 20th century that it was predominantly African-Americans who were being lynched. Um, They were aware that that it was racial violence. What was striking was how often white Protestants would talk about the need to get rid of lynching in terms of law and order, saying like, this is something that's an evil, but it's an evil because it messes with our criminal procedure. It messes with us becoming a modern society that has laws, that has procedures that we follow in our justice system. This is just mob rule. This is mob justice. And this put Black pastors and and Black religious leaders in a bind because they wanted to condemn lynching as well, but they were much more tuned into this as an issue of violence against Black people. So sometimes you would find that they would ally on a particular lynching issue, but then it, rhetoric would go in very different directions. Sometimes you might even find that white religious leaders would be criticized for not including lynching in consideration of an, an anti-crime proposal by black pastors. The reasons that black pastors would make that argument would be much more focused on the needs of their own community. I think this is really an important point to make whenever we're talking about race, policing, and criminal justice and religion is that no one wants crime (laughs) in their neighborhoods, right? Like no one wants to feel unsafe, but the ways that crime can be interpreted 
and the responses that various communities have, especially communities that have historically been under-resourced or marginalized, often they're put in really tricky spots and they're put in difficult places and, and forced to make concessions. So I talk in the book a little bit about a guy named John Roach Stratton, who's a fundamentalist pastor who makes some very aggressively racist comments early in his career when he's just starting out as a, as a pastor about black crime rate and how he thinks that Black people are much more prone to criminality. I was really surprised like a couple decades later in my research to see him speaking at a conference with African-American Protestant ministers on crime. Wow. And, and the thing is that they were both worried about this issue. And I think- And specifically, that- isn't he the guy that goes after the KKK? He does. But again, he goes after the KKK because he sees it as a problem for for a long time. Like the way they go around about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not so much that this is this is racist violence, it's mob rule. I think that a lot of African-American clergy, some of them saw this as a risk they, they were willing to take. It showed just how difficult of a situation they were in. Your 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 story moves to kind of Billy Graham and some of the way in which he talked quite a bit about juvenile delinquency is, is the big phrase that gets used. I want to get there, but like right before Graham, I mean, you know, as I'm thinking about the Billy Sundays with the prohibition, a number of these things, is there a divide that happened at all in the fundamentalist modernist split of the 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, and early 50s up till the World War II era where there's a split on quote-unquote, the war on crime? Or or is the story up to, say, Graham and the neo-evangelicals? Liberals kind of generally think of people as being generally good and having more social issues, and the fundamentalists have more of a darker end of things. But they're both saying, like, but we got to do something about crime, and, and probably policing is the way to do that. Is there a division there or not so much? So there, there would be a division in terms of their understanding of where crime comes from. Typically, more conservative uh, pastors and religious leaders would see crime as a matter of individual choice. You have chosen to do something bad when you, you know, steal something. Liberals, sort of tracking along with broader progressive sensibilities, would narrate crime more as a product of the environment. Someone is going to commit a crime because they, the environmental factors in their neighborhood or their family or their, their school or the media. This really crystallizes in some, some major court cases in the, the 1920s. The one I, I write most about is the uh, 1924 Leopold and Loeb case, where two young men are, are on trial for murder. And pastors narrate the reasons they commit this murder in very different ways along those lines. Some just saying they're evil, they chose to do a bad thing. Progressives saying they're the product of a disordered environment. And conservatives saying they chose to do something evil, basically. Yeah, exactly. You know, conservatives were very keen to point out that Leopold and Loeb had been students at the University of Chicago and had been immersed in modernist intellectual culture. And they, they really like to remind progressives of you know this fact. There was this divergence that happened in terms of understanding where crime comes from, and eventually it's going to become a much more pronounced split later in the 20th century, especially in the aftermath of the civil rights movement, as liberals and conservatives argue about what to do about crime. But I think largely what the point I'm trying to make is that they both saw it as a crime as a singular issue and saw that state power had to do something to address it. And then as that happens, the big conversation is organized crime, as you have prohibition, these other things, as you said, the rise of the FBI, the rise of more organized criminal justice system. What's interesting about the Leopold and Loeb is that they were these kind of 
fairly younger, you know, early 20s college student type, you know, post-college student types. But the conversation definitely in the 20s, 30s, 40s moves towards kind of a, adult criminals, right? If I'm understanding your, your narrative right, Billy Graham takes the conversation and radically shifts it back to youth culture coming out of the Youth for Christ movement. And everything he talks about in every single evangelistic sermon practically is juvenile delinquency and juvenile delinquency, juvenile delinquency. How does that change the conversation? Billy Graham, and he's certainly not the only. Other people working for Youth for Christ and, and similar organizations in the late mid to late 40s, early 50s, are very zeroed in on the problem of the youth. <laughs> you know, the, the challenge of teenagers running wild. There's a title from a brochure I remember finding. I think it's a Youth for Christ brochure. It's called like Teenagers on the Rampage. And that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of rhetoric you would often hear. Graham would sometimes talk about crime at this point in terms of gangsters. Famously, he has a, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association puts out a film at one point in the 50s that's sort of the story, the true life story of Jim Voss, who's a wiretapper working for the mob who comes to Christ, leaves him his mobster ways. I think we've published one of those articles before in like the past couple of years. <laughs> really? Huh? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. yes, yeah, so we published them in the fifties and we're still publishing yeah. them in the 2020s. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's, it's inspiring stuff. I mean, you know, Jim Voss is a really interesting character in his own right. Although then Voss in his own life goes on and works with youth in New York and ministers to youth gangs. So there's this real sense that that youth, youth gangs, teenagers, this emerging category of the teenager even as a, a space between childhood and adulthood is somehow is somehow up for grabs and that evangelicals need to say something about this. I get into how what I expected to find when I started working on the research was, to be honest, I thought I was going to find Billy Graham talking about how we need to crack down on these kids. And that's not really what I found. He's very concerned that kids behave right. He's very concerned about youth. You know, Jim Voss, David Wilkerson, other evangelicals are very concerned about youth behavior. But the way they talk about it is so much more in terms of we need to love these kids. We need to help these teenagers and bring them the gospel so that their lives will change. But it was was not really punitive in the late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, there's not very much in the story of what well, you mentioned, David Wilkerson, the, you know, Tom Skinner, a number of these stories who become major evangelists of that 50s and 60s and 70s culture. You don't get a part of the story where it's like, and then I went and you know turned myself in for this, or as a result, I made restitution here or there. It's kind of like, come to Jesus, your life will turn around, and society will be generally happy that you've turned your life around. And as more and more people turn their life around, society will be better. What changes that? Like, what what changes that mode from you know, let's get more people saved to, you know what, there probably is a state solution to some of this. It definitely shifts. But one of the things I try to show is how that move that Graham and David Wilkerson, others are making helps set the stage for the shift. So first of all, because they are so focused in on individual offenders, whether delinquents or, or otherwise, they 
are still able to make an argument that it isn't really about social conditions, that crime is really still a matter of the individual. And so Graham, is he finds it very easy to talk about, use his language of make a decision for Christ, which is this very individualistic notion of conversion. And he applies that to, to matters of criminality in the late 40s, early 50s. It kind of removes social conditions from the equation for a lot of evangelicals in terms of how they think about where crime comes from, how to understand why people might commit offenses or why people get involved in gangs. Or maybe why even particular things are designated as crimes, yeah. right? Or who decides what a crime gets to be. Yeah, right. So I think that that helps set the stage for this as well as the way evangelicals, white evangelicals, talk about the city. David Wilkerson, famously the author of The Cross and the Switchblade, which would sell millions of copies, you know, in a Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania town, and he goes to New York. He's this, you know, small town evangelist facing down the big city. The way he talks about his own deep love and concern for the youth he finds there, those who are involved in gangs, those who are addicted to drugs. At the same time he's doing that, he's blaming the city. He's labeling the city as disorder, as a place that is sinful, as a place that causes problems. And I think that that gets evangelicals ready for what comes next. And what comes next is, uh, in the book, I talk about how really the crisis of the cities in the mid-60s, beginning with the Watts Uprising, 1965, and moving on into various uprisings later in the decade, evangelicals start to look at cities and the problems there that they see happening, the disorder there that they see on their television screens and in newspapers, and they start to think, okay, these people are acting wrongly. I don't have a strong sense that they're... (laughs) They are receiving the love of Christ like they should have. And so perhaps there's another option for them. And that's law and order. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up 
and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. This is one of the ironies that I saw in the book, which is where Graham actually starts to more incorporate, or is at least perceived to incorporate more of a law and order conversation. Some of his talks is actually amid amid segregation and amid the the push to criticize the white segregationists who are resisting Brown v. Board of Education. In fact, there's this talk about uh, the newspaper headlines that all of a sudden shift, and there's a one headline that's evangelist calls for love, law, and order, and then there's another. Uh, political cartoon that that has uh, Billy Graham preaching, which and it says triumph of law and order. And it's, it was interesting for me to see, you know, we started this conversation talking about some Franklin Graham socks. It was interesting for me to see, at least in this narrative, where law and order really among evangelicals starts to pick up steam on a racial issue, but kind of on the on the positive side of that to say, you know, no, we do, we do need to do more than just get people saved. We also probably do need to tell people who are, who are opposing integration, uh, especially at the evangelistic crusades, but in broader society, that they need to get on board with this uh, social change. That's interesting to me. So now we're in the uh, we're in the '60s and and '70s, and is this where a more familiar narrative about um, Nixon's Law and Order campaign comes in, and, and the war on drugs, or is there a, a religious thing? going on there as well? Because obviously Billy Graham is then super close with Nixon. I'm just wondering how that how that plays out. The Nixon story is there. One of, one of the things I wanted to do in the book, and, and I'm building in some ways off of the great historical work that's been done by other scholars of evangelicalism, um, like Stephen Miller, Darren Dochuk, who talk about white evangelicals' linkages to, to Nixon. And I knew that that was there, that Nixon identifies as the law and order candidate, brings Billy Graham out to help him capture votes among white evangelicals, especially in the South. I wanted to do a couple of things to complicate that story a little bit. And one was just looking at state and local level. So not just seeing law and order as a federal operation, but trying to see how it would play out on on the state level and, and even in local neighborhoods. And so I looked at California here. Even before Nixon shows up in 1966, Governor Reagan is running and making crime a signature campaign issue in California and also courting evangelical voters. And in fact, Reagan's creative society speech that he gives that is sort of his own self-definition of where he wants his campaign to go. That speech has a lot about crime in it. And it's the ideas in that speech come from William Stewart McBurney, who's a pastor in Southern California. So I, I wanted to look at how this plays out on the state level and not just see this as a federal story, but a story where local communities and state leaders are, are developing their own policing and tough on crime practices. The second thing I'll say, though, is how I was so struck throughout writing this, especially among white evangelicals who saw themselves as moderates, how they wanted to, to frame law and order as a matter of colorblindness as a matter even of racial justice that we are helping black communities by sending the police. One of the main people I write about here is Congressman John Anderson in Illinois, who has this dramatic conversion on the issues of civil rights. In part, actually, he says from reading Christianity Today. At the same time, he is becoming more open to civil rights legislation. He's also doubling down on the need for crime fighting, the need for law and order to secure not only voting rights, to secure not only desegregation, but to secure public safety. What I noticed was how policing in this moment, law enforcement is narrated by white evangelicals as racially neutral, 
as racially sensitive even, but it clearly wasn't. Because then when you listen to African-Americans, especially African-American evangelicals even, some of them start to point out the problems here. Tom Skinner has a dramatic moment at the Urbana Convention for InterVarsity in 1970 where he calls out Billy Graham and he says, all of you are talking about law and order, but you're ignoring how law and order affects our neighborhoods. All of you pay lip service to this idea of this, you know, this racially neutral colorblind dream, but it's actually, it's hurting our communities. The police, he calls the police an occupational force in our communities. I was really trying to zero in on the way that policing and politics of race are linked even at that moment for evangelicals. I'm seeing a lot of stuff here, Aaron. You've talked a lot about maybe the good intentions that have really fueled the way for a lot of these different particular beliefs around crime and young people and pushing forth particular law and order policies. When it comes to this type of thing about race that you're bringing up right now, I'm curious how you chalk everything up to it. Do you just feel like some of the key white evangelical proponents did not listen or did not want to listen, also kind of had their own self-interest in mind and their own comfort when they were advocating for particular policies. What exactly did that conversation look like? So I've been thinking about this a lot in the last couple of days on matters, even just on police brutality and how white Christians have, white evangelicals have reacted. I was remembering how in, in the 60s, as law and order rhetoric really is becoming a major feature of the national political landscape, white Christians are getting drawn into siding with candidates who they see as tough on crime. And in response to complaints about police brutality, white evangelicals would claim that police brutality wasn't a real problem, wasn't really happening, or that police use of violent force was justified. And I'm thinking here of one, one piece, it's from 1969, in a Presbyterian magazine. It's a piece written by a concerned mother who praises police brutality because she sees it as something that's positive and needed for young people. And what's striking in that piece, defending police brutality, is she doesn't talk about race at all. She removes police brutality from the context of its clear harm, long-documented harm towards African-Americans. I think that this showed shows how white evangelicals had little sense of why Police brutality was a matter of concern for African Americans, but how it was possible to keep talking about law and order in race-neutral terms, to avoid discussion of race. And to be frank, I, I see this happening today. I see this a very similar things happening today where leading evangelical figures downplay police brutality and the concerns of people of color and, and even their fellow Christians. And the Franklin Graham Facebook post from 2015 is exactly that. It's so hard to hear that and not just hear how tone deaf it is and how ignorant it is of this history of how police force has been used in very harmful ways among African-American communities. And I think the other thing, too, I don't know exactly where this fits into it, but when you mentioned that there was this letter that came out in the 60s and that there was a general kind of acknowledgement about it, I would say that that level of honesty, that that was something that the police even engaged in, was something that I even grew up very knowing very little about overall, and that the police in general were very much always presented as good people. If there was something questionable that came up, it was a good person who did something 
for good reasons. And if you didn't necessarily understand it at that time, you know, I, I in my head, I'm just like, wow, how did they get this very sterling reputation, even though police brutality has been going on seemingly for a very long time? I think part of it is that there's just this longstanding, complicated relationship of evangelicals to state power. That's and, and this is a point I try to drive home in my book is that often evangelicals are narrated as political conservatives, which on some issues mean that they are they want to withdraw state power from common life, you know, usually in the economy, like creating a freer market. On issues of criminal justice, it's flipped. There is a an interest in inserting state power all the more forcefully into our common life. This has changed in the last couple of years as conservatives have sort of woken up to, to some of the, the challenges there. More generally, you just see time and time again, evangelicals appealing to Romans 13 here, right? Like that police are chosen by God. They are divinely ordained by God to keep peace, to maintain justice. When you have a sense that something is divinely ordained, it becomes very easy to overlook overlook problems, overlook the misapplication of force, or to even question the existence of a profession like policing altogether, even as that profession is historically contingent. I also just want to mention another complicating factor here that I'm glad you read the Franklin Graham quote from 2015 and then his quote from the last couple of days in response to George Floyd killing. What I worry about is the sort of blurred lines between those two Facebook posts, I guess you could say, how evangelicals move from this very uncritical way of thinking about the role of police, the role of state violence, to then pointing out when problems do exist, when problems do show up, the the kinds of problems we dwell on. I worry that many white evangelicals, that they are talking about the problem of police brutality in terms of the exceptions, in terms of the bad apples, and then proposing things like more training or more pushing more into the colorblind frame, or even mobilizing language of like racial reconciliation to say that Black Americans have an opportunity to forgive and befriend the officers in their midst. That is very concerning to me because we've seen this before. We've seen this in moves toward community policing, which envisions police as more closely connected and perhaps even friendly to the neighborhoods they serve. This was a big move, apartments in the 1970s. And I encourage you to check out Max Felker Cantor's work here on the LAPD. It's fascinating. And I think Max shows convincingly, and I try to make a similar claim in my book, how community policing projects are really much more about just changing perceptions of law enforcement not the practices of how they operate. And really, making police more directly connected to communities, embedding them more closely in communities, often just exposes residents to more interactions and more risk, increases the likelihood they'll be stopped, frisked, and arrested. And so I I think we have to move beyond talking about these issues in terms of bad apples, a colorblind frame, or that somehow we can train our way out of this. There has to be a much deeper reckoning in terms of the racial uh, injustice that's occurred here. Well, and I think I should just end up reading the rest of the Franklin Graham statement then just so everyone knows. We cut it for 
time at the beginning, but I can read it here and I can obviously put it in our show notes and well. But he goes on to say, this is after he has said, these officers will have to stand before God and the authorities on this earth for what they have done. And then he says, thankfully, this is not the story of every police department. Most men and women who work in law enforcement are tremendous servants who put their lives on the line every day to protect their communities. We need to pray that God will give them wisdom and grace to face the storms that they will encounter. I hope every police department will learn from this and make the changes needed to never let something like this happen again. Pray for George Floyd's family, loved ones, and friends that God will put his loving arms around them and comfort them during this tragedy. I wonder if you see one of the interesting things in, in the book is the narrative doesn't just flow in, in one in one direction. And I do think reading some of the stuff from the 1980s where you have, for example, uh, Bob Vernon, who was you know acting acting police chief during during the Rodney King riots. You know, he becomes an, an evangelical celebrity uh, of sorts. Uh, largely, he, he publishes a book with focus on the family. He's unfocused on the family. Time he spoke at a you know in my church growing up. I remember I remember him coming coming to our church and, and giving fairly small church in Hawaii, giving a very rousing talk, and was you know definitely the uh, of the church there. I think the underlying assumption was, oh, you know, police chief equals you know this kind of her, you know heroic Christian figure because of where he stands. Now, obviously, that's all, I was in a different kind of space reading. Then in a hundred years earlier, that it was really difficult to convince Christians that you could be a Christian and, and be a police officer was very interesting. Seeing the rhetoric now of all this bad apples conversation that goes around, and, and I do like what Alyssa Wilkinson tweeted out this week, which is like people love to talk about such bad apples. Yeah, people love to talk about bad apples, but they never finish the actual rest of the line. So that was a keen observation. But I do wonder if there is. An opportunity here. Going back to the gram and some of these things, this this idea that like sin is a problem that we all have can minimize certain acts of brutality. We also have times in history where people recognizing the sinfulness and and, and their complicity in in sin uh, has been a time for repentance and for significant social change. You know, historians hate to do this, but do you see signs that there is a contemporary shift that? from this going on right now in regards to policing, police brutality in this kind of post-Chuck Colson era or something like that? I don't know. To be honest, after yesterday, <laughs> uh, you know, when you see President Trump clear out, you know, forcefully have law enforcement clear out a space using tear gas and flashbang grenades so he can go do a photo op of the Bible in front of St. John's Church down the street from the White House. When I saw that, and I, pe- I saw people on Twitter and elsewhere just sort of confu- you know, saying like, can you believe this? Isn't that so strange? And I thought, no, like that is exactly how this works. Like that is a story that's of the 20th century in terms of how crime, concern, disorder, religious concepts are mobilized together. So I worry we're going to see more of the same. And I, I worry that we will continue to see videotaped killings of uh, African-Americans and people will call for incremental change in police departments and nothing will actually change because we've, we've known about this kind of stuff for forever. <laughs> and for you know we've had videos of it for years now and it still keeps happening. I think also here, and this is where I want to like, I want to make sure that I'm not coming across as like ripping the police because I don't think I am. I think actually we have to reckon with ourselves. We have to reckon with our society and that we demand too much of our police. 
we ask them to be things that they are not trained to be. We want them to be social workers. We want them to be mental health workers. We want them to be school resources. That's not what they're trained to do, but they have to do it because we've divested from the kinds of programs and shared practices of common life that could enrich our communities, particularly those communities that are vulnerable. So I think we as a society are to blame, and, and I say this to my white evangelical brothers and sisters, like we are, we are not capable of speaking in critical ways about our own propensities towards, towards violence, endorsement of state power, and our, our inability to see social change as happening in more constructive ways. I think that that's big problem here, and it, and it goes beyond the individual intentions of a single police officer. It is our story. Aaron, I think this is a, a good place to leave off with one caveat, and I want to ask you one question, maybe just to go a little bit deeper in where you're headed right now, because I think many of us who are not experiencing the fear and trepidation that comes with being an over-policed community might say comments like, I think things may have changed in the past five years, or I think that many people's eyes may have been opened since Ferguson, for instance, or I'm encouraged to see more people speaking out. And that may be true, and Christians may be more vocal about this, but I think what you're hinting at is that for as encouraging as it may be to see an increasing number of voices saying things and being blunt about what they are observing, at the same time, there's an actual potential sacrifice that some of us may have to make. And I use sacrifice kind of in quotes because I think it would actually make our society better overall, right? For communities not to be over-policed and for police brutality not to be a thing. So what would you say for people who are in majority culture, what will they have to give up in order to change? Some of what we will have to do, and I use the term we like very intentionally there, because I am a part of this world. But I think some of it is we will have to become much more critical of the presence of when we see the state use violence, the state constrain, surveil, imprison people. You have to realize like it hasn't always been this way, and it doesn't have to be this way. There has to be a shift in imagination there of what we think is just possible. But that may mean that we have to change how we live our lives. When we see someone that we deem, you know, to be suspicious, what do we do? How do we interrogate our own presuppositions, our own instinct to call the police? And how do we think about what ways of common life, what forms of politics are, are possible for addressing any number of very real issues that our communities face, um, that our cities face, that our nation faces in terms of education, in terms of mental health, in terms of our economy, uh, whatever. So that would be first thing. But the second thing I would say, and this is this goes back to the Billy Graham stuff, juvenile delinquency Billy Graham stuff, is that I actually think evangelicals have some resources here in terms of living into their, I think, very real concern for individual lives to see you know, that God loves people and has a plan for their life, <laughs> you know, like that means that we are able to invest in people's lives, that we are able to take risks, invest into people sometimes in ways that require a lot from us. I think here there's a, a wonderful book I recommend by Victor Rios called Punished, Policing the Lives of Black and Latino Boys that I think really gets at this. And Victor Rios in that book talks about how Youth in Oakland, Black and Latino youth in Oakland are constantly the victims of 
policing and of a, a society that tries to surveil them and constrain them. And he documents this in, in really rich, sometimes very horrifying detail. He talks at the end about how the support of youth, of these youth, comes from someone deciding, like, I'm going to mentor somebody. I'm going to show up in their school. I'm going to help them and do costly things, you know, as an individual, just to help out this person. And I think evangelicals can be really good at that. I think evangelicals have a sense of individual accountability in a positive way there. And I hope we can live into that while at the same time maintaining a healthy skepticism of the ways that that violence can be enacted in our nation in other ways. Well, thank you, Aaron, for all of that history and good food for thought. We invite all of our listeners to email us at podcast@christianitytoday.com. We really do appreciate hearing from people. So if you have perspectives or thoughts or opinions that may or may not have been represented today, please get in touch with us. Also, we are on Twitter at CT Podcasts. So we recognize that this has been a very intense week in many ways and a heavy one. We still do think it is good to name things that have brought us joy in the midst of this. So now is the time for Precious Moments, where we ask everyone to share something that has done that, brought joy into your life in the past week. Ted, it's all yours. Well, I was able to get out to a place that I had never been before. Apparently, it's one of the top birdwatching spots in DuPage County. Just to have a beautiful summer day, walking around, looking for birds, not seeing so many. And there was a part of me that was tempted to be disappointed by the lack of birds that I saw. But just enjoying what I what I could see there on Sunday morning was absolutely it was just it was just a beautiful late spring early summer day and so yeah that was definitely my uh, my precious moment I took my mask but didn't need it because there was there were zero other people in the entire part and the entire forest preserve but it was it was great to be there so how about how about you Morgan what was your precious moment for the week I think it was also nature related. I went on a long bike ride on Saturday on something called the Prairie Trail, which from where we are, the Wheaton Carroll Stream area recording this, I don't know, maybe it's like 40 minutes northwest of here. And we made it to Wisconsin. So that was cool. And it was just great to be outside. There was a lot of beautiful, I'm sorry, my ability to name flowers is actually pretty pathetic, but purple flowers that were along the way. Ted, what were those flowers? Please help me. (laughs) Dude, I can't even, I've been trying to birdwatch for a year. I still can't name simple birds. So, you know, flowers is for another project. That's for sure. I, I, I can't name any either. If it's not a tulip or a rose, then I'm done. The other notable thing about this was that there were actual hills to go on when we biked. So Illinois, not known for that. Well, let me not say hills, but let's just say inclines that were kind of steep. That was really great, though. Yes, the place I went was called Elson's Hill, and I I looked in vain for said hill. That false advertising again by Illinois. Nothing new. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, Aaron, your turn. So I I have three kids, Sam, Evelyn, and Franklin. Sam and Evelyn both were given roller skates a couple of days ago. Wow. Uh, Sam and Evelyn are not listening to this, so I can say this. They're really, they really are not good at it yet. Like, <laughs> like, um, but it's just such a joy to watch them and like they want to figure it out. I'm grateful to my to my mom for giving them the skates and I hope they can figure it out. We'll see. They're, they're How still old are they? Sam is five and Evelyn's three. 
So they are, they're just a joy and they've been bringing me a lot of joy this week. The other thing is that yesterday I was on a walk with Sam up some hills actually, but we came across a bunch of like trash on the side of the road that I think just someone had put out to get picked up. And Sam is very into Star Wars as you know, which I'm very, <laughs> very proud of. And among the the trash was like all these fairly good condition Star Wars toys. Like wow. a whole like big Millennium Falcon. And so, you know, I felt like a little weird just like, you know, grabbing some trash on the side of the road. But I was like, this is great, Sam. You don't realize like how good of a find this is. So we brought <laughs> we brought the Millennium Falcon home yesterday, cleaned it up. It's been a source of joy for for all of us. That's a great story. Very cool. Remind us the name of your book and where people can find it. Sure. So my book is God's Law and Order. The Politics of Punishment in Evangelical America. It comes out later this fall via Harvard University Press. You can buy it, of course, on Amazon, but I encourage you to purchase it from your local bookstore. And you can find me on Twitter at Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, L. Griffith, G-R-I-F-F-I-T-H. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. The podcast is produced by myself, Matt Lindor, and the transcript is done by Boonmi Ashola. If you have feedback for us, send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. If you want to support the show, which we always appreciate, go to orderct.com slash podcast and become a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts podcast is available though wherever you get your podcasts we will see you all next week every day ct testifies to the reality that jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.